Welcome everyone to Forgotten Feminists. Today, our special guest is Deb. Deb is a fellow cult survivor, um, and she's going to tell us all about her experience with, uh, let's say, let's say two cults, <laughs> perhaps, maybe. I might be wrong on that. We'll get some clarification. Deb, welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming to Forgotten Feminists. Thank, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and be part of your your um, vast array of amazing women who've already talked about their experiences, who I'm so in awe of. So thank you so much. Yes, my absolute pleasure. And you are an awe-inspiring, amazing woman. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, so first and foremost, I want to speak to you a little bit about the cult that you grew up in. So your mom joined it when you were, I think, 11 or 12 years old. Can you tell us a little bit about, because I, in my book, I talk a little bit about how my life was pre my mom becoming a born again Muslim mm -hmm. and that how shocking that transition was for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask you about kind of a little bit about your life before you joined the cult, a little bit about the transition and then what it was like to live in that cult. Okay. Um, yeah. So my, I was 12 and I'm the oldest of five kids when my mother joined the cult and actually at the time, of course, you never, you never think you're joining a cult. You never think you're part of a cult until you're out or you're like on your way out. Um, so it was actually a church in Illinois, a Methodist church with a, um, a reputation of helping people with all of their issues, like helping people overcome alcoholism or, um, you know, any kind of addictions, um, sexual issues, just all of these. And the, the, the pastor of the church was pretty proud of that. That was his, you know, his big, Hey, here I am. Come let me help you. Um, and like I said, my mom was, she was single mom, five kids. I was the oldest. My youngest, um, sibling was three or four at the time. So, you know, that age range, um, we, my dad had left us. So we were on our own. We were dirt poor, just struggling to survive. Sometimes we didn't have food. Sometimes we didn't have electricity. So my mom was looking for something. She was looking for something that made her feel good, um, validated her, something she could be a part of. And this church sounded like the perfect place. And the minute that we walked through the doors of that place, I knew something was wrong. Mm. I knew at 12 years old, I knew it was not going to be a good thing for us. My mom didn't see any of that. Mm -hmm. so, what were so you seeing? Because I can, I, I'm, again, I'm sort of doing the similarity between our two moms, five kids versus three kids, single mom, father out of the picture, uh, dirt poor. We were not that dirt poor, but we were pretty poor. Um, and looking for support, community, you know, validation. So finding this, which I would assume for our moms would have felt like an oasis in the desert. Like she would have mm -hmm. probably felt like finally she's protected. Finally, she has a community around her. Finally, she's not alone. Um, but what were the red flags for you? Um, 
I'd experienced quite a bit before we walked through the doors of the church. So there was a lot of abuse and neglect in my home. Um, a lot of my mom's boyfriends in and out and um, some abuse going on there. And so I was really weary of adults. I didn't trust adults. And when I walked into this church and I saw adults behaving in pretty much the same way that my mother behaved, sort of with an edge of mental illness, um, this hyper love bombing that was going on, um, hugging, they hugged everybody and we're huggers, so we're going to hug you. Um, there was just the, there was a feeling of the same rather than something new and different and safe. It didn't feel safe. I saw adults behaving just like my mother behaved and I thought, oh, great, more of the same. So that is what I saw as a kid. That is really, really perceptive. Like that's quite impressive actually, because most kids, myself included, when we grow up in you know, in, in households that are incredibly abusive, we have narcissistic parents, there's mental health issues all over the place. We don't even know, like, we're just like, uh, it's like a fish not realizing they're wet, right? Like you just think this is normal because you don't know anything different. So it, it, it's really, um, impressive to me that you were so, perceptive at such a young age to recognize uh this is this is more of the same <laughs> you know destructive behavior that I that I grew up in I did have so my mother had some obvious mental illness probably mm-hmm. undiagnosed but I did have you know bef- until the time I was 9 I had some pretty solid family we had, mm-hmm. I had grandparents, aunts and uncles. My dad was around and I could see the difference in my mother's behavior compared to theirs. Uh-huh. And my, you know, my mother's behavior and treatment of us where she would have a breakdown, go check herself into a hospital for a couple of weeks, come home in a vegetative state on medications. So I had, I, I did have the, you know, the ability to see the difference and feel that in that safe environment until all of that went away. And then it was just all the unsafe going on. Got it. Got it. Yeah. 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 That, that makes sense. Yeah. So you had something to compare to, Mm -hmm. whereas I, I didn't have that. So I didn't didn't know what normal looked like, but, um, but yeah, no, that's, that's that's really interesting. Um, So when you were a part of this cult, did it like, what was it like for you being in it? Cause I know you eventually, you know, spoiler alert, I already wrote this in the bio. Everybody knows that you eventually were able to escape. Mm-hmm. What was it about living in that cult that like, how did your life change or how was it um, a negative experience for you and that you wanted to get out of it? Uh, so as a child and already living with, I just call it an unsafe environment. It was mentally, emotionally, physically, just unsafe. Un, um, you know, there wasn't anything in my environment that provided um, safety, like comfort and love and support. And as a kid, I wanted that. 
I, I mm. just wanted my mother to mother us and to, to come back to herself and be there. And I really, I thought, okay, this, this is, these people have to be normal. You know, there has to be some normalcy here somewhere among this group. I, I looked for that and I waited for that to happen, but the, but we went from an unstable, um, unsafe to a stable, safe, unsafe to a stable, unsafe. Oh, so it was, it became, um, I, I hated being there. We started going to church every single day and we lived about 25 miles away from the church when my mom first joined. So we were driving back and forth there in this old beat up car that she never had enough money for gas for, let alone food for us. So we were going back and forth to this place. My mother was finding friendship and acceptance, but they didn't offer the same thing to me and my siblings. Mm -hmm. We were almost actually seen as like baggage, like this collateral damage or something that, um, yeah, so there were no... There were no events, no groups, no specific um, things set up for kids. Like we couldn't take part in anything but sit in these groups with these adults. And every night of the week, we're at church and we're in different different groups, Bible studies, something they called sharing groups, um, counseling sessions. My mother started taking, she was in these counseling sessions that sometimes we would be brought into. So it's all of this like this new crazy going on that we didn't have a place in. There was no place for us in that. We were shoved to the side. We were treated. Actually, at one point, the pastor called me and my siblings hostile and yeah, hostile. And we were too old for him to help us. So he couldn't reach us. And I'm thinking if we were too old, my mom must have just been way too right. old, right? Because she was like 30. Yeah. <laughs> like if a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old is too old for you to be helping, then we should probably just shut this place down, right? Mm-hmm. But um, so, and then as we're becoming more involved in groups and going to counseling, being assigned to counselors, um, my mom's thinking we're too far away from church. So she picks us up from a place that I had lived most of my life, moves us to this new location. So we're in a new school. Now we're closer to church. So not only we're going to church every night, but sometimes during the day for various groups. So we're like, we're in, all in, just attending. And then I started um, being taken into counseling sessions for me to help fix all of my issues and going on weekend retreats where we're sitting with adults and listening to them talk about all of their issues and get help. So it's like we're, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like there was anything offered to us as children to help us um, become, to thrive. Mm-hmm. But my mother was finding something that I knew just didn't feel right. In fact, you know, it's funny. Um, I always forget to tell people this. Our first visit there, we pulled into the driveway. It's this long, long drive to the church, and it's this ugly, flat brick building that does not look like a church. And we go around to the backside, and we park, and there's a bunch of kids. I mean, kids who look like they're from, like, you know, the the, the play Annie. <laughs> they look like they're just orphans and shreds on this old, rusty swing set that's, like, knee-deep in overgrown grass and weeds. 
And we're walking towards the building. And this one kid said, no, you go in the other door, like down to the kitchen area rather than through the, the worship area. And I was like, okay, that's uh-huh. where. And then it, another kid yells out, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. <laughs> They're warning you. Yeah. And I'm like, what is, what is going on here? So that, you know, I mean, to be fair, that really set me off from the get-go. Like we're going into this building into a basement. Kids are on the swing set yelling at us to, you know, kind of warning us. And um, so walking in and seeing these people who didn't appear normal, sane, um, Put me on Some edge. Flags there. Yeah. 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 Why why did you have to go in through the basement? Is it because your mom was a woman? No, no, they just they oh, held okay. because that's the way it is in mosques. Yeah, there were the <laughs> there were these <laughs> big rooms down in the basement of the church where they held like their um sharing groups and Bible studies and counseling sessions. And then also we walk in and the place reeks of body odor oh, and cigarettes, yeah. like stale gross cigarettes. Two and I have a hypersensitive sense of smell. So I'm like nauseous and freaked out and kids are yelling at us and because they, yeah. they were holding AA meetings in the church building. Ah, so, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's that that whole it's reminding me of how I was raised to not listen to my gut and how you push your gut feelings away and you just move forward and you do what you're supposed to do. And I get the sense that you were doing that at that point. Like you were just getting this gut feeling. These kids are yelling. It's smelly. There's weeds. I'm going in the basement. Like there's a lot of things for my for my body and mind to be, you know, sending off these warning signals, but still you just, you're a kid, you know, you follow your mom and you just go forward and you just ignore, you suppress whatever your body is trying to tell you. So my mother and I had a really angsty relationship. I, you know, I, I ended, I was taking care of my brothers and sisters. She was, before we joined the church, she would be gone for a week at a time and leave us alone at home. So I was taking care of my siblings. Sometimes we didn't have food. Like I said, we didn't have electricity. We never had a phone. Um, I couldn't go to school because I was taking care of my little siblings. Um, and then when she came home, I was just this angry, horrible kid, you know, yelling at her and telling her to go buy us food. So there was this like angst going on. And she also knew. So the minute we walked into the church, we could, she could smell it too. And she turned and looked at me and she goes, don't you say a fucking word. Oh, wow. Wow. Because of the stink and and my nose was probably already turned up, but I was hypersensitive to a lot of things when I was a kid, because Mm -hmm. I mean, there was, it was like living in a, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but um, a lot of stress, Mm -hmm. a lot of angst, a lot of um, emotional issues. Like I was always terrified. And my responses were guttural. Like I would, I would get sick to my stomach or feel like I was going to throw up if I smelled something I didn't like. So that's what she turned to me. So she knew the minute we walked Mm -hmm. in, she saw it. So, um, and then of course I was angry with her because didn't want to go to church. The fact that she wasted money on gas to go to church when we didn't Mm -hmm. have food at home. I mean, all these things, I'm a 12 year old and these are the kinds of things that I'm dealing with, you know? How can you yeah. buy new clothes when we don't have food? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very frustrating so, as a kid mm-hmm, that you, yeah. that you're the mature one, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. the thoughtful one. And the one who's supposed to be responsible, taking care of you is making all of these irrational, irresponsible decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious about your belief system. So had you, mm-hmm. you said they were Mennonite. They were Methodist. Methodist. Oh, okay. Methodist. Sorry. So I, you um, know, religion doesn't mean anything to me. So I don't know what Methodist means. I don't know how that differs from Catholicism or, you know, is it Protestant? I don't know any of that. Oh, so well, either do I, Methodist. so that's great. <laughs> but what? I'm just curious about, I said, either do I. Okay. Um, I'm curious about when you were, before you joined the church, mm-hmm. this Methodist church, were you part of any church? Did you have already sort of a belief system in any kind of Christianity? Um, and then when you became part of the church, were you at ever any point a believer? Did you ever really believe in any of the teachings or was it more of this is my lot in life and this is what my mom has chosen to do? And so I have to go to this church every day and go to these weekend retreats uh, sort of against your will. Right. Um, so my my mother's mother was Methodist. My father's mm. mother was Catholic and they always said, they always made this joke, like in the Catholic church, there's the Pope. And then there's Margaret Donner is my grandmother. So there was a very, <laughs> strong, <laughs> a very strong religious um, uh, lifestyle on that side. My mom's mother, you know, they lived, they were farm people, just laid back really into family, family oriented. Um, her religion and her, her, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like her belief system was a part of her life, but it was never like on show or we never heard about it. You know, we never heard about that kind of stuff from her. So I had some um, exposure to religion as a kid. Like, you know, we went on Christmas and we went on Easter to the church with my grandmother, or if we were staying with the Donners in um, the summertime, we would go to mass. Or So I had that exposure, but I never really had anybody um, shoving religion down my throat or teaching me here's here's what we leave, we believe reading the Bible um, it never really was a big part of my life and I, I never um, I never thought about it I mean I was a, you know a kid at 12 it just wasn't I just knew that on a higher level we were Christians mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to any you know Buddhist or you know right. So how was this Methodist church different from the one that your grandmother was a part of? Like how, how, why, why, why do you describe this one as a cult? And so I want to say too, that I don't call what I was in a cult because of the religious aspect. I call Mm -hmm. it a cult because of the controlling nature, the, um, the narcissistic leader that was in charge that everybody looked up to and, he made the decisions for everybody. He laid out the plan forward in life and you either followed that or you left. And if you left, you were disparaged. So there's, there's different aspects of it that the reason I call it a cult and I just as I don't adhere to religion or take part in any of that, the word cult to me does not imply religious undertones or religious um, attachments. It's more that, that controlling. And so, like I said, I, I didn't even, I didn't even realize it was a cult until I escaped in 1981. Mm. But um, I do know as a kid that 
and all of the kids that were there, we called our parents brainwashed. We said, Lou, our parents are brainwashed. Lou can tell them to do anything. We hated Lou, who was the pastor. Um, he controlled things. He was so horribly um, abusive to us. There wasn't any kindness or love from him for the kids. It was always this um, like um, disparagement and um, like tearing us down, tearing us apart, calling us out. But we saw him for what he was. We saw him as this controlling narcissistic sociopath who made our lives miserable through our parents. Yeah. The control over so, him. You might be familiar with Dr. Stephen Hassan, who oh, yeah. is an expert on cults. Yeah. And so he's got the bite model, which is mm-hmm. you know, stands for behavior, information, thought mm-hmm. and emotion. And so mm-hmm. you're right. It a lot of religions do fit neatly into there. And but mm-hmm. also a lot of secular belief systems do as well political belief systems right and um what you're talking about with the the leader of the the charismatic sociopath is is a very common trademark of cults as well mm-hmm. um i guess what i'm trying to to pull out of you is what were what was the circumstance like you call him a sociopath you say that it was very controlling I want to hear some examples of what was it that made you, obviously he did a very bad job of onboarding the children, <laughs> you know, you know, that was a failure Unboarding. on his part. Right. Um, but, you know, like what were the aspects, like if you look at the bite model, like what were the parts of this group mm-hmm. that made you in 1981 realize, or at this point now, even what trademarks does it have that make you call it a cult or what, what experiences did you have that made you feel like you were part of a cult? So initially in Illinois, um, they call themselves the fellowship. So there's one, they give themselves this name. They actually, they started using um, language differently. They started talking about things that were defined within the construct of the group, like feelings, I'm having feelings, or um, I'm making a commitment to the group. That was one thing too, is everybody needed to make a commitment to the group. And under that commitment, the umbrella of that commitment was you were exposed at any time to um, confrontation of your sins. You were forced to confess. I mean, there were all of these pieces that, you know, you first, and if you were, fronted with something and accused of something, there was no way out of it. You either confessed whether you did it or not and acquiesce or for the adults, just leave. And there was this, I mean, I could, I watched my mother become completely sucked in by everything by first um, the love bombing. You know, we love you so much. We're going to help you. We're going to take care of your kids. We're going to put, they put food in our refrigerator. They put gas in my mom's car. Um, they they brought a bunch of clothes and stuff to give to us. So we had all these things at first. And we're like, oh, these people, they're, they're, our family hasn't done this for us. Look at how wonderful these people are. So then she's going to counseling, submitting to counseling groups. And in these counseling groups, she would tell everything, all of her sins, everything she'd ever done and ask for forgiveness. And then after about two weeks, she made a commitment to the church or to the group or to Christ's way, which was actually 
lose weight. Um, and then as time went on, I saw things shift from this loving, kind acceptance of her to this confronting and bashing and, and, um, it, I mean, it, it went from very kind to bullying within a few weeks, but they would tell her, okay, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. You're going to cry. You're going to feel like leaving, but you've got to stay because this is the good stuff. This is how you grow. This is how you become more Christ-like mm-hmm. by giving into all of these things. Um, so then as that progressed and we were going to the church more, they started creating these these different groups, these different types of therapies that people submitted to um, that were pretty perverse and, and sexually abusive in nature. And, and so we joined in 74 by 1975, 76, Lou was being investigated for doing these things in the parsonage, holding these groups on church property. Um, And at the same time he was building a boat and church funds started disappearing. So it's like all of these things are starting to come to the attention of the church, you know, the hierarchy. Right. So investigating him. And then there, there's this secrecy. Don't tell anybody about this. It's so beautiful that nobody will understand it. Mm-hmm. And we have to keep it secret. And then okay. I watched them, I watched them lie about it. It's like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. you're calling yourselves honest and truthful and, and trustworthy, but you're not telling the truth to people outside who are calling you out for this. So there's all of these pieces that, that are starting to present themselves. And then um, by 197, by the end of 1975, early 1976, Lou was, he was kicked out of the church. They said, either you have to leave or you have to stand trial for heresy. So he decides, he decides, and he talks to the parishioners and about 50, to 60 people like families and, and single people decide they're going to follow him from Illinois to a new place to live, create a, a community where they could continue. Okay. Well, there you go. There's yeah. the, that's definitely so, a cult now. Yeah. 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 So I mean, that's, that's like a Jim Jones level. Oh, well, <laughs> it's funny you say that because a, f- a couple of my friends didn't follow to, to Washington state when they left Illinois Unfortunately, I had to. I was a kid. I had nowhere else to go. Um, I started getting these like anonymous letters from a friend of mine with with um, articles about Jim Jones and Jonestown. Mm-hmm. Just nothing else, just those. And I was like, that's really weird. Why would somebody send me this? I still didn't see it. Still yeah. did not see it. It's until, hard to see when you're in it. Yeah. yeah. It's impossible. I was never all in. Never. I, I had my sights on leaving. Mm-hmm. I thought that was going to be when I turned 16. Then I thought it was going to be when I was 18. Um, but by the time we moved to Vashon and we were separated from family and friends that we had had before, which was, you know, another thing that was part of making that commitment was cutting off from your family yeah. because they could not possibly understand how beautiful things were for you now. And, and they were going to hinder people's progress. Of course they would, because they saw the crap going on and they were going to say, yeah. uh, you need to get out now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. another 
Another very distinct cult behavior is you said that if you choose to leave, it, they have sort of that excommunication similar to Scientologists, mm-hmm. where if you leave, you are no longer one of us. Mm-hmm. And um, was your mother allowed to continue to have a relationship with you or your siblings? Like what, what is um, the circumstances around when you said when you left the cult? So it's very it was very different in the in the commune because when people left Lou still wanted to know what was going on with them like at, at one point we weren't allowed to do anything except go to school and come home because he was afraid of what we might be telling our teachers or telling others you know our schoolmates of what was going on in the commune so when my brothers my brothers were the first to leave my two younger brothers and my mom stayed in contact with them but then she would come back up to the commune and in in our in our meetings tell them everything my brothers had said oh yeah so she would betray them and she would tell Lou all of these things that my brothers were into and doing so that he could then rip them apart so he still had to have that that like little bit of hook in our lives so that he could use us as examples for everybody still there like oh look at Deborah now she's having sex with an Arab boy you know, or okay, let's, let's yeah. jump right into that then. <laughs> because I, I am so curious about that transition. I mean, I can just imagine, it's hard to imagine, but you know, you're part of this commune, you're in this teeny tiny little group that is very controlling. You somehow pull yourself out of that. I assume you had support with your brothers to get yourself out of that. Um, situation that you were in and I'm sure you've seen this comment because it's like the most repeated comment on your uh, any social media that I've posted about this everybody said out of the frying pan into the fire you know (laughs) tell me about meeting this Arab guy um, and yeah so so tell me about that I won't I won't (laughs) okay so um when I escaped the, the commune, you know, most, most kids, when you leave home, you got a bucket full of stuff that you're going to thrive in life. You know how to balance your checkbook. You've got goals, ideas, plans for yourself. I had nothing. Not only did I have nothing, I had negative, you know, assets in my, you know, my arsenal of thriving in society. Um, I was alone. The, for the first few months, my mother would not talk to me when I left the commune. So I had, I had no family. I had some, I had a small um, like social group on Vashon where we lived um, that I could rely on, but I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. Sorry. I was um, 18, almost 19. It was like February 81. I would have been 19 in in April. So you just graduated from high school. I was still in high school. I hadn't graduated. It was a year. So I was a year behind too, because of other stories, you know, about being in the cult in Illinois, I flunked a whole year of school. Um, and you were saying that earlier you had to take care of your siblings, so you weren't even able to go to school. So obviously there were a lot of gaps in your education. So, yeah, that yeah. was rough. But so here I am, I had left the commune and I was feeling free, to be honest with you. I was like, woohoo, you know, I no restrictions. I'm going to eat sugar. I'm going to yeah. sleep. <laughs> wow, they Saturday. restrict your sugar. Oh, okay. The, the, yeah, they restrict everything. So yeah, there's a lot more in that bite model that applies to this place. But um, I'm going to listen to music. I'm going to drink. I'm going to get stoned. 
I'm going to have fun. So I kind of, you know, I'm like, but, but with some restraint too, because I still wanted to maintain control over myself. And I had a bunch of friends from high school who were telling me about this disco they were going to on Mercer Island in Washington state. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just not into it. You guys, it's just not me. I'm not, I'm not a social person. And they just kept telling me, you've got to come to this place. You've got to meet these guys. They're, they smell good. They're funny. They're, they're amazing. And I'm like, so there was one day I was, I was just bored and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go with you to this disco. And I get there and these girls are surrounded by these men who smell yummy. They're just handsome and, and just present well. they're dressed well. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is kind of nice. <laughs> this looks like fun. And that's how I met Muhammad. Muhammad was one of the, the guys who was there. Didn't speak a word of English. It was super sweet, super attentive. Mm-hmm. And we started dating maybe a couple of weeks after, after we met mm-hmm. and they were living in Tacoma and Bashan is right in between Seattle yeah. and Tacoma. And I was going to Tacoma community college and that's mm-hmm. where Muhammad was going to school. So we mm-hmm. started studying together and, um, you know, we'd stay up all night, all hours of the night chatting and talking and cooking and eating and studying. And, but what was different was, and what I really liked is they didn't, they didn't drink and they didn't smoke. They weren't, yeah. they weren't drugs and they didn't drink. So that felt safe to me. That felt, felt like familiar. Kind of, kind of pulled me back in from what I was doing and the path I was going down mm-hmm. because I easily could have been one of the other kids who escaped the commune and, you know, lived on the streets doing drugs or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, um, we were dating for probably six months when things started to get kind of strange. Like I was at, I was at his apartment one night and he came into the bedroom and goes, you have to leave. You have to leave right now because you have to go out the window. And I was like, what is going on? What is this all about? And up to that point, I saw nothing of his religious beliefs. It was just fun, exciting. And I mean, when I say I was in his bedroom, we weren't having sex. We were studying and out of the way from the guys partying or, you know, sitting out in the living room. Well, apparently there was this guy who was super religious who came over and I could not be in front of his face. I could not be there when he was there. Um, I couldn't touch anything that he ate from. I couldn't sit on furniture that he would sit on. Um, It was weird. Like at the bathroom, they had to clean down the bathroom because I used the same bathroom it was bizarre. And I'm like, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm like, you know what, if that's, I'm, I'm thinking he has like mental health issues and it's oh. like, okay, right. And then I find out that he's super ultra religious. Yeah. And it, I, it never occurred to me to ask Muhammad, Hey, what are your religious beliefs? What do you, cause I didn't have any and I didn't care. Mm-hmm. So he told me he was Muslim, but he was, you know, kind of on the, liberal side you know he had some fun he went dancing and but from that moment that that guy came to the house things changed and that guy moved in with muhammad no no he was i i don't even know who he was i just know that he suddenly had this influence over the guys and they Mm. all started becoming more um religious and more like um like i had a christmas tree up Mm-hmm. And they made me take the Christmas tree down 
Yeah. Um, this was, made- uh, this is just following the exact same trajectory, like timeline wise as my mom and as basically the planet, as far as when Islamism started to grow and when the extremists and the Islamists started to have this sur- more power and they started to, I mean, the convert isn't the right word, but to radicalize the Muslims. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you, yes. it sounds like you and I went through the same experience at the same time, but for you, it was your boyfriend. And for me, it was my mm-hmm. mom, but it was the mm-hmm. same point in time. Yeah. So this guy was yeah. the catalyst for them to become more he was and um religious. Yeah. And and you know, there's and looking back, there's nothing I could have done to change it. Nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I could have said to Muhammad to make him see differently, um, to behave differently. And I was in love with him. We were in love. We were talking about getting married and you know, having babies and having a life together. He was so mm-hmm. he was such the polar opposite of what I had ever had in my life. Like he was safe. He was um, protective. He was financially secure. He was kind. He was loving. He was funny. It was like, I mean, he, the bar was so low, good. Deb. Pardon? <laughs> <laughs> the bar and he, was low. And but he I, was and so I, cute. <laughs> yeah, of course. I get that tall, dark and handsome part, obviously. And I uh-huh. also very clearly and commonly see that what you referred to now as safe and protection because Mm -hmm. in the beginning it looks like safety and protection and then after a while you start to recognize wait a minute this is actually controlling yes but as you would know i'm sure you know this already it's familiarity right you Mm -hmm. grew up in a controlling environment and so to be with somebody who was also controlling wouldn't it wouldn't be such a stretch you know it would almost feel comfortable and, and safe because it's familiar Exactly. That's exactly what my therapist said to me too. When, and, and I was seeing this therapist when I like left the commune and was dating Muhammad. And um, so then I started to see, and, and I guess it was okay at that point because I wanted to be with him all the time. I didn't want to go off on my own. I didn't want to get a job. I, you know, I was like comfortable, but the first time that it really affected me was we had a Seven Eleven across the street and I said, hey, I'm going to go across to the 7-Eleven. And he goes, no, you're not. I thought he was kidding. I really did. Because I'm a pretty strong person. And I'm pretty vocal. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to the store. I'll be right back. He was serious. He's like, I did not give you permission to leave the house. Wow. And I was like, who wow. the hell do you think you are, buddy? And, um, and up until that time, I'd never seen any of this. And I said, um, I'm going to the store. And not only am I going to the store, I'm going to get some beer and some cigarettes. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, and some bacon too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the other thing too, because I was eating ham and, you know, bacon and whatever I wanted to eat. That had to stop when this guy came into the picture. And it wasn't so much that he told me to stop doing that. I couldn't bring it into the house anymore. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I get that. I can respect that, right? Not realizing that, like, my mother getting sucked into the cult, those mm-hmm. little things that mm-hmm. snowplow and, you know, get huge. So that was our, our first big fight. And I ended up not going to the store because I thought, he's not he's not behaving 
sanely right now. And I don't know how far this will go. So then the next day he apologizes and like, yeah, you know, we just need to, we just need to understand what your boundaries are, or we need to understand what your expectations are is what he said to me. And I'm like, I, I, it was so, I couldn't comprehend what he was saying, but what he was Mm -hmm. telling me was you need to understand your place in this relationship Mm -hmm. and what you can and cannot do. And you cannot leave this house or go anywhere without my permission. And it just, it, I mean, at the time, because I was like, you know, I want to be in this relationship. Is it really going to hurt me if I don't go to the store by myself and wait for him to get home? You know, those little things I gave in and I just kind of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, it became this, this almost combative thing with me too. Like I was pushing the envelope and, and it's kind of the same thing I did when I left the cult too, because I was living in this world of bizarre, strange behavior, like Mm -hmm. me being used to sleep with a man when his wife was gone was normal to them. I didn't like it, but it was normal. And I would test these things. I'd be like, Hey, can I, um, can I climb in bed with you guys? No, you can't. That's weird. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that is, that is not healthy. That is weird. I can't do okay, that. Okay. I'm going to need you to rewind a second. Cause I'm okay. gonna, <laughs> I just got confused. So oh. when you were part of this, so when you were living on Vashon Island and you were part mm-hmm. of that cult, mm-hmm. you would be made to sleep with men when their wives were away mm-hmm. or have this, they called it skin time. And it was, it was part of Lou's ideas. I wasn't going to go into this because I wasn't quite sure. I didn't want to traumatize people listening, but there was a very perverse um, sexual undertone to the cult. Very perverse. And it was more Lou's idea that sex in our culture is a myth. So he was going to eradicate it from everybody. And one of the ways of eradicating that is to get everybody together naked all the time. So that desensitizes them. So... Wow. You yeah. should have led with that when I asked you what made it a cult. <laughs> sorry. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Sorry, you guys. Wow, yeah, sorry. Crazy. Yeah, that reminds me of oh, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's this um Indian guy that had a cult in America in the 70s. It was massive. And they just did a, a there was a documentary about him. Uh, you know, I can't remember his name, but anyway, he also had a similar thing where they just had everybody naked in a room um it was part of the the cult initiation as well but, but that, uh but yeah that, um that's not the one that's holy hell is it that holy hell documentary no it was not. Hmm. i can't remember he's the guy that has an actually this is a really funny quote that he has that gets shared all the time where he says um democracy is is leadership by the people he says but the problem is the people are retarded oh my gosh <laughs> so ter- he's, he's he's basically supporting dictatorship right um but it's a funny quote but that's the guy i can see his face i remember the documentary but i just can't remember the name of it somebody's going to write it in the comments at some point it's not the bhagwan um, Sri rajneesh dude is it Yes, that's right. That's him. That was in Oregon, just south of us, like around the same time period that, um, oh my gosh. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. Hang on one second. I'm going to turn okay. this off. Oh, I'm so okay. sorry. I it was off. No, I don't think Momo would approve of that, uh, Sahara. But Momo was sexually perverse as well, right? He had obviously having 11 wives and then having sex slaves and having concubines and having a, a six-year-old wife. I mean, there's all of these cults all, that is that seems to be another common denominator between them mm -hmm. is just this this deviancy when it comes to mm -hmm. sexual relationships right um, right so yeah so when you so if i can go back to what you were saying before because i can i can relate to this feeling of not knowing what is normal because you grew mm -hmm. up in such a weird environment mm -hmm. so when you were with this guy muhammad you were trying to figure out like is it normal to sleep Right. So like, right. oh, so that's what you were doing. Like, can I sleep with your friends? Like, no. Yeah. You, you yeah. can't. And so it, you were learning the boundaries from him. And that that is also a huge red flag to me because you're learning the boundaries from somebody who is also has a corrupt understanding of boundaries, yes. you know, yeah. but you were looking yeah. to him for guidance because who else did you have at that point? Right, right. So, I mean, and this is where I was when I met him. I was in this point of, you know, I was a child when we went joined the cult. I hated it. I knew it wasn't right, but it normalized. You know, a lot of it normalized over time, right? And not that I wanted to be a part of it or take part in it, but I'm like, you know, I don't know what normal is. I don't know how to how to create boundaries, healthy boundaries, and know if I'm being treated right or if I'm being treated like I am somebody's belonging, which is what he yeah. was doing. He was treating me like I was his, his, his piece of property. And that is really actually how he thought that yeah. a woman and a woman that is his woman is his property and he can do with her as he wishes when he wishes. Now he did have, so his family, I, I really still like his family. He's still really, ultra i mean once that that happened that sort of radicalization in his brain it was on from there his family on the other hand are more laid back i mean they're muslim um most of them don't pray once a day if they pray once a week you know they they take part in ramadan but only because you know it's like this family get together time thing. cultural yeah and you get to eat and you get to sleep and you have fun because i participated in that with them but he um he's still on that radical side so he he had that upbringing of more of a liberal kind of um a fun laid back lifestyle where it wasn't rammed down his throat or expected of him now having said that my experience though with with muslims even if they're super liberal is if they're in front of somebody who's radicalized or who has these more conservative views, they will align more with that in the moment, you know, rather than be themselves. And that, that was interesting. Yeah. I thought, yeah, wow, that defer to the, defer to the mo more religious, most religious person in the group. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I remember, um, I mean, things, things got progressively worse with Muhammad. Um, then as, when I was with him, I was drawn back into a trial of some people who were in the cult 
they were accused of molesting children. So I was drawn as, as a defense witness. So I was drawn back to that and he could not handle it. And I'm like, I told my attorney, I'm like, you're going to have to subpoena me because that's the mm-hmm. only way that I'm going to be able to leave my home in, a, in any kind of fashion that doesn't result in us fighting or coming back to somebody who won't speak to me for three days. Um, so wow. that's when kind of we started like, and I was pregnant too. I was pregnant with my son at that point. And um, when I kind of had my out from the relationship, because I knew I was not going to stay like, I, I'm not going to live like this. I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to live like this. I mean, there would be times when I would come home and he would have locked me out of the house because oh he thought I was out having sex with men or, or I was drinking or yeah, there's this, there's a weird sort of a weird mentality that these guys had that all American women are bitches. Oh yeah. Whores, whores and bitches. And that was new to me too. Cause I'm like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not either of those things. Mm-hmm. My friends are either of those things, but they couldn't see it because these mm-hmm. women were controlled all the time. Somebody wasn't maintaining every action of their day. So if they went out by themselves at one point, they must be having sex with somebody. Therefore they're a whore. It is, Correct. it was bizarre to, to even comprehend that that's the way they thought. And you can't change that. You can't change mm-hmm. that in their brain. It's hardwired in there. And it's mm-hmm. it, when, when somebody has that and there's no trust and there's jealousy and compounded by that, you can't have a relationship with a man who, who thinks that way. Mm-hmm. And I knew, even though I had no skills and maintaining relationships, man, I was a freaking mess. I knew I didn't want that. Mm-hmm. So um, I, can't, I can't even imagine what it would feel like to be you in that moment, being pregnant and realizing that you are oh, in this controlling relationship with a man that wants to have so much power over you that you can't even go and be a witness to protect children who were molested. I mean, oh my God. And after your whole childhood that you've been through too, like you literally had not smelled a whiff of life without trauma yet at this point. Like you were just immersed in trauma after trauma. How were you, how did you get away from, from Muhammad? So I was pregnant with my son. Um, I was going to trial every day. Um, It was like January, February of 1984. And my son was due in October. And the trial was over in February. In March, I got really sick because, I mean, it was, it sucked the life out of me going to trial and trying to defend these guys against the commune in this situation. And um, I was sick and I was in the hospital and I lost about 14 pounds in a week. And I didn't want to lose my child. And I told Muhammad, I said, this is the only thing we need to think about right now is this baby. This baby has to be born. This baby deserves a life. I need to leave here. So he said, yeah, fine. Why don't you go live with your dad? So I left and went to my dad's in Louisiana. And I mean, I was like living on the road. Like I, I, I was homeless, but I was away from him. Mm-hmm. And it was it was rough because I did still care about him, but I knew that I was not, that's not the life I wanted. And here I am thinking I'm going to have a baby with him and be able to cut him out of my life. So, I mean, I was like, I was, I was so 
unaware of the reality of life at this point. So I'm, I'm staying with my dad and Muhammad's like, okay, are you better now? Can you come home? I'm like, no, I'm not better. I'm not better. I'm still sick. So then I went to stay with a friend in North Carolina until like September, September 20th. And then my mom had left the commune in the meantime. And she said, I want you to come back here and, um, you know, you can come and live with me. So then I left North Carolina, went back to my mom's to live with her. And Muhammad found out that I was back in Washington state <laughs> through my little because I told him, yeah, I'm still in North Carolina. You know, I'm not doing real well. I'm just still not happy. I'm thriving at this point. Right. Yeah. Um, and so your, your son, your son was born at some point during this. Movie no, no. So I, can't, I went back to Seattle in September, September 12th. My son was born October 5th, mm. September 12th. Muhammad finds out I'm in Seattle. And I said to him, I'm like, I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't live a life with you. This is not going to work. I said, you have two choices. If you want me in my, in your life, you give up Islam. <laughs> or you stay out of our lives. He showed up at my mom's house, like the middle of September. And he said, I, I, I give up Islam. Come back to me. Right. And I bought it, you guys. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I have all this yeah. power. So I moved down to Oregon with him. And he, he was completely different. Mm-hmm. His, his behavior was different. He was kinder softer gentler and i you know i'd take the car and go do my thing with when i wanted to no jealousy no anger or anything right come i i went to a friend's house and i came home one night and i'm changing our bedding and this woman's picture falls out of his pillowcase oh my god i'm like oh it must be a sister or something you know so i like put it back in there and i'm just sitting there thinking that's kind of weird why would he put his sister's photo on his pillowcase? So he came home and I'm like, oh yeah, your sister's photo fell out of your pillowcase. I'm really sorry. I put it back in there. And he went white. Like he just kind of stood there and went, oh, okay, thank you. And then it clicked. It clicked. I'm like, wait, who is this person? He had gone home and got married. Of course. Yeah. Like at Christmas time, Sahara already wrote that in the chat. Yeah, she, <laughs> we saw she we knows. saw that coming, Deb. She knows. I didn't see it coming, you guys. I felt like I was like I felt like I was in a train heading for a brick wall at 300 miles an hour and just bam right into it. And then, I mean, I was like, I was like, I lost for words. I'm like, how could you? What have you done? You you got. I'm like do you really think I'm going to stick around for this? Do you think I'm going to be wife number two? He goes, no, you're wife number one. (laughs) (laughs) Have you lost your freaking mind? And then it was horrible. I mean, that was when like, it was so bad. It was so bad. I can't believe I'm still emotional over it, but I was like, what have I done to my life? What have I done? Right. You didn't do anything. This is all on him. This is but I'm like, all. Why did I see him. those little flags that I like beat my no. mother up that scene, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. But so that's the all... reason why it was so much easier too, though, because you already had, you were primed, you know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, the fact that your mom had been through this and that you went through it with her 
right? Is the reason why you could fall back into this cycle so effortlessly. And how would you ever, I mean, Sahara and I saw it coming because we grew up in these communities. We grew up in this environment. We grew up with this being normalized. You know, the fa- I was laughing at the fact that he said to you, oh, no, your wife, number one, as if that makes it any fucking better. But this I is know. how they think. I know. You know? I was like, like, no, no, no. On the hierarchy, you're you're the first one. <laughs> so you're like, oh, OK, well, in that case, you know, bring on the other. <laughs> that makes it better. So now that yeah. makes it better. Yeah. But yeah. that's the that's the messed up. That's that's all on him. Yeah. You know, like, I don't want you ever to ever to think again or to feel again. What have I done? You didn't do anything (laughs) to deserve that kind of treatment. You know, you had you were a child who was never given the right tools to be a full and complete autonomous young woman that Mm -hmm. when you severed yourself from this cult and where you were out on your own, you may have looked to be 19 on the outside, but you were a newborn baby. You didn't know anything. You had no survival skills. And more importantly than the survival skills, you didn't have any self trust. You didn't have any confidence. You didn't have any you know, you, you didn't, you didn't know how to be Deb. You didn't even know who Deb was. Exactly. So for him to find you, you were a puddle and it would have been just like this complete, it would have been so easy for him to just mold you into whatever he wanted to mold you into because you were not anything yet. You know, this woman that I'm talking to right now, now you're Deb, right? This is who you are. Right. This is this is your authentic self that was completely buried under there all those years Mm -hmm. trying to become herself. But she never could because Mm -hmm. she was jumping from one controlling traumatic situation to another. You know, Mm -hmm. this is who you are today. And this woman who you are today, there is no way that a man will be able to take advantage of you and to manipulate Mm -hmm. you and to be so controlling and destructive as he was able to do back when you were so young. It's a completely different situation. And we can't discount the fact too, that you were not only in the middle of going to this trial every day, which is so taxing emotionally, but you're pregnant. Yeah. And you're jumping from state to state. I mean, my gosh, Deb, this was, it was a complete perfect storm of horrible circumstances that, when you, you know, when you take a step back and you take a look at it, it's a shock that you survived that and that you're sitting here talking to me today. I mean, it's a, it's, it's an unbelievable feat that you, what you've been through. So many of us that were in that same position didn't make it out, you know, Yeah. You, you don't make it out because the, the, the mountain is just too high. Yeah. And and the obstacles are just too vast. But you did it. You yeah. did it. I had a I had a therapist who told me one time she said you have an unbelievably high um what did she say you have a high threshold for psych for psychotic behavior. <laughs> she was, mm-hmm. I've never had a patient who has such a high threshold for normalizing psychotic behavior in other people. And that was, I mean, 
I think she was well, trying you had to be your mom funny. from the get go. Oh God. Yeah. 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 My, I mean, uh, I mean, we could talk eight hours about just my mother alone, you know, but, mm-hmm. but yeah. So, I mean, and you know, on the one hand, on the one hand, I take some responsibility because it hasn't been easy for my, for my children, um, you know, with this family and this, the, you know, that Muslim side and the draw from, from their father, um, and that, that need on their own to identify and understand who their parents are. So I take some responsibility for, um, at that time, not paying attention to those red flags myself and drawing back, you know, or, or, or saying when I left, I should have stayed gone. You know, he would have never yeah, known. I, 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 I personally, I, I totally disagree with that. And I think you're being mm-hmm. really unfair to that Deb, you know, you, you really have to sort of look at her as a different young woman and what she was going through and have some empathy for her and some understanding. And, um, and, and I think it's important to be kind to her, you know, and, and you can only do what you can do with the tools and the knowledge that you have. That's you can't true. judge that Deb right. with, yeah, you're right. with, with the, with the yeah. um, experiences and the understandings and all of the, the, the self-evaluations of this current Deb, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're judging her by a completely different yardstick. Yeah. So yeah. um So, I mean, there was, I mean, so he got married, his wife came over here with him and, you know, stayed down in Oregon with him and, you know, they built a life together and had kids and I lived up in Seattle with my son and, you know, once in a while he would come up and see him and, you know, and then he was gone, he went home. So you weren't together during this time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. No. And at the time, because Muhammad's name was not on the birth certificate, I got custody of my, my son. I got oh, custody. Goodness. Yeah, I got custody. So I think I had a friend who just said, you need to do this. You need to get custody of both your children. My daughter came a little bit later and that's another story. Um, mm. But, um, you know, I still, I, I care about Muhammad. I have compassion for him especially now, I mean, he's gone through a lot in his life. I don't think he's mentally stable. I think there's always been something in his life. And then he's always been stuck in that, that world that to me Mm -hmm. is, is like being in prison. I liken that lifestyle to being in prison, not having, you know, so I feel bad for him that he's never been able to break break free from that. And especially in the past few weeks, he's had some serious mental issues going on that, you know, are, are, are weighing heavy, especially on my son and on his wife. And so, but, you know, then that brings me to my son, you know, my son yeah. is Muslim. Yeah. How did that happen? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, all I know is that he, that's what he chose. That's what he wanted to, to take part in. And actually he, they lived in Qum in Iran for several years where he went to school. Oh, okay. And, so, so you have custody of your son and then at some point Muhammad gets custody. So no, no. So my, when my son was, 
My son went to high school. He had to go to high school in UAE so that he could get a scholarship to come back and go to college. So he went to high school in UAE. He came back here and he was in college for a couple of years. He didn't like it here. He wanted to go back. He liked life uh, better there. So how was, old is he when he moved to the UAE? 12. Okay. Yeah. It was quite no, 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 I'm sorry. no, 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 no. So he was in high school. So maybe 14, 15. Yeah. Yeah. But he and was I'm assuming he was going to an international school when he was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Like through Adnock? It's like, it's the cushiest, most possible, like it's, it's a, it's like Harry Potter being invited exactly. to go to Hogwarts. You know? Yeah. Of course yeah, he's he going to love fun. it. I mean, he's telling me these yeah. stories now of things that he did back then. I'm like, holy crap. Did, did you have no guidance? Did nobody pay attention? And here's something too. When my son went back to go to, co- to high school, Muhammad called me one day and he's like, you fucking bitch. My son doesn't even know who God is and hung up on me. And I was like, thank God he doesn't know who God is, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> From my perspective. So I think maybe there was some indoctrination going on. Of course. That point. But I'm thinking my son's never going to buy into that. Mm-hmm. And when he, so he graduated, came over here, went to college. And then he went back to work. Mm-hmm. And at some point when he was back over there, he became religious. Like he became entrenched in the religious aspect. He was never really um militant about it or what's the word i'm looking for um um like he didn't idealize it it was just like a lifestyle for him and something to adhere to but i think he did with everybody else in the uae right he's gonna blend in yeah 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 and he's one you know he wants to make his dad happy and i think muhammad's extremely um aggressive when he's Mm -hmm. talking about islam and about you know, how you should behave, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, um, how you should be treating your wife. If you're not hitting your wife, then, you know, you're not really a good husband. My son's like, I'm not going to hit my wife. What the fuck is wrong with you, dad? Mm. So he's like, he's got enough, I think, of me in him, you know, to, to hang on to those pieces that I'm afraid would get lost. But I'm still, I'm still perplexed by him going to Coombe and studying there. Mm-hmm. with those clerics for so long. I don't, I don't understand mm-hmm. that. I don't know what that, what that is in his life and having, you know, forcing his family to live there for so long and his, mm-hmm. you know, his wife and his daughter having to completely cover themselves when they go in public because they don't do that when we're in Dubai or in mm-hmm. Abu Dhabi. So I don't, I don't understand what that is maybe hopefully one day I can talk to him about it and he and, and he's not um defensive or yeah wow so I would assume your son is one of those people that is supporting the Islamic Republic right now oh no oh good so they left so they left Iran when things started getting pretty nasty over there um and he's I talked to him about that I said do you understand what's happening he goes oh yeah mom I understand because I have friends who are there and they tell me what's going on he said, there's no way that I can go back there because I wouldn't be safe. My family would not be safe there. Mm. Don't talk about, because here's the thing too. And you, you probably, the women probably understand this and have faced this. In my, my experience, Muslim men and even some Muslim women believe that men and women are just 
diametrically different. Our brains are different. And women think this way and men think this way. And the men have this amazing brain that women could never understand, you know, so here's the women, Mm -hmm. here's the men, as far as like logic and, and thinking and stuff. So there's a, there's a, a portion of communication, like, especially with Muhammad, where it's, it feels like we're on the same page and we're talking to each other, but I know he's acquiescing and he's like, you know, he's patting me on the shoulder, going, yeah, you know, you're just too stupid to understand or to comprehend the reality of the situation. So there's this Mm -hmm. prejudice and this like built in, um, what's the word I'm looking for built in, um, attitude towards women that we could just never possibly overcome because it's so hardwired in their heads. Yes. And I don't think you, you, it's difficult to explain it to people. You have to experience it and see it and be a, a, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I know what you mean. So your, your son would be doing this with you because of two reasons. Number one, because you're a woman and number two, because you're a non-Muslim. So for Mm -hmm. two reasons, you are deficient (laughs) <laughs> right from his perspective right, right. and I, I'm sure you've heard of the um of, of Muhammad telling people in the, the hadith where he says that women are deficient in intelligence and mm-hmm. there's that constant men need to be responsible for women like it we're talked about as if we're like this like a, a pet or a thing yes. that needs to taken care of that is too stupid to be able to live on its own you know like a thing really not just a thing but a really stupid thing that stupid, is to be yeah. used yeah and and then of course being uh being a non-muslim is there's there's that level of it as well where there it's that islamic supremacy and all who are not muslim are lower down on this you know supremacy ladder or whatever mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why he would be talking down to you for those two reasons. Oh, that it just made my stomach turn talking about that because <laughs> I just can't, I don't have any sons. I have two daughters, but I know what it's like for men in that society. And I mean, my daughters wouldn't have been like that anyway, or my sons, because I did I didn't, wouldn't have raised them in that world, but I have a brother, I have uncles, I have, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> stepfather and father and all of them. They're all like that, where they all have that attitude of just talking down to women. Like it just right. to, to have your own son have that demeanor or that attitude with you. Like, I just can't even. He doesn't yeah. do it so much anymore because for a while I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't push back on him. Like in the past year, I've been pushing back and there's more respect from him now and less, less like, you know, talking down and and talking stupid. But, but my concern is not so much for him. It's for his sons, his sons. And his, does he have daughters? Yeah. One daughter, Fatma, she's, um, she just turned 16. She Mm -hmm. just turned 16 Mm -hmm. and listen to this. My son calls me, he goes, you're not going to believe what just happened. I'm like, oh my God, I, I don't know. I don't, I never know what to expect. His grandmother called him and said, there are people contacting her trying to match my grandmother. I should have said it. I almost said it. And I didn't say I it. I told him, no. I said, that will not happen, my dear. That mm-hmm. will not happen. That girl gets an education. She gets to choose her life, her future, what she wants to do. 
He hasn't said anything, but I told him, I said, you do realize that I will come unhinged mm-hmm. and it will affect our relationship that we've worked so hard on and that this respect that you have for me, I will risk all of that to advocate for her and mm-hmm. just that she can have a life because I'm not going to have her end up as some of these other women that I've seen. You know, this still, I mean, people think, oh, this is an antiquated idea, but women are belongings there. They don't have a life. They're breeders. You know, they're yeah. just breeders. Absolutely they don't have a life. She's an artist and she loves to read horror stories. And, you know, we watch movies together and I see all this life in her and this beauty and this, like this zest for life. And I will not have that destroyed in her. So just make sure to have a direct communication route to Fatima that does not, that cannot be intercepted by her dad or her mother, probably. Um, or yeah, her brothers. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know where, um, where Zainab stands on things. She's very, she's, she's very, um, she's not an open book. She's very difficult. I mean, they've been married for, you know, 16, 17 years and it's very difficult to have conversations with her. And I feel like her, I feel like she was broken as a kid and I don't want to see my granddaughter like that. I feel like there's nothing there because it's just broken. And why should she do anything but what she's doing and the life she's living. That's all she's ever known. Yeah. yeah. And my son's she won't like, even no. see it as, as something yeah. negative. She'll just see it as something normal. He's like, you have to have your life. You have to go. You need to have things that you do. Have some friends. She just now started driving because he's forcing her to drive. He's like, I'm sorry, but you have to learn how to drive. You have to be able to take the kids to school, pick the kids up, go see your friends, go to the airport so you can go to your family you know, pick your family up. He's like this, this has to, and she's just fine with never, never driving. Mm-hmm. Never. So it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a plant. When you put a plant in a small pot, the roots can only go so far. It stays small. It never, it only grows so tall. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of us were raised. When you're talking about Zainab, mm-hmm. it just reminds me of myself and so many others who've, who've come on Forgotten Feminists, our lives are teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. And we're taught that we are teeny tiny. Right. And so you, at a certain point, because you don't, you don't aspire to more because you don't have the roots and you don't have the height and you don't have the ability because your pot is so small. Right. You know, you have to, it, it is so difficult to break out of that pot you know, Mm -hmm. and, and to, to want more for yourself, because it also, it also ends up feeling safe and comfortable. Like we were talking about before, the most destructive things can feel safe and comfortable because they're familiar. And so the thought of breaking out of this pot and having your roots expand and, 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 and growing taller is terrifying. Right. You know, and she's being given that opportunity when your husband or sorry, when your son is telling her to, to get her driver's license and whatever, it, it almost, it, it would feel weird to her, if not yeah. scary for yeah. her to have somebody push her to grow. Yeah. Um, that that's one of his biggest frustrations too, with her is like, mom, I don't, I don't know how to encourage her. I don't know how to tell her our baby's growing up. Our baby's like, 
you know, he'll be, he'll be eight soon. We're not having any more babies, which was her whole focus. She loves, she just loves being the mom and having the babies. He's like, now what, now, what are you going to, what are you going to do? What, who are you? What are you, what, what's going to happen? And he's like, I said, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's therapists, maybe there's people who can help. I said, but you also didn't encourage this a long time ago. Exactly. I'm sorry, but she's your wife. You know, she's the mother of your children. You're going to have to invest. Mm You're going to have to invest in whatever that takes to give, to help her understand she can have a life because you Mm -hmm. also took part in, in oppressing her. Yeah. And there will be limitations too. Like, even though he's telling her to grow, he's telling her to grow on his terms. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I said to him too. That's what I said. I'm like, is she doing this because you want her to do this because this is what you think she should be doing? Or are are you encouraging her because you want her to have a life to have to be? Mm. I said, because look at this right now, look at your daughter. I mean, Fatima's like this freaking wildcat. She's like, she's a go-getter. She's fierce. She's, you know, she, she kind of, she kind of runs the show sometimes because she's in charge and she's, you know, she's, I want to see that in her mother too, but I don't know if it's ever going to, but I also said, do you want to see your daughter in this situation, this feeling that you're having about this woman who didn't have those opportunities when she was a kid? Mm-hmm. So think about that too, you know, think about, mm-hmm. think about the big picture here, how it's affecting your children and, and what's mm-hmm. going on. And I think, I think this is one of the reasons that he decided not to go back to Iran is because he saw this happening and manifesting and thinking, holy shit, you know, this is, we can't go back there because it's so oppressive there. Yeah, so- it is. Especially for women. Yes. Um, And it's also just a very bad environment to be in anyway, even if they are one of the people that like you were saying that your uh, daughter in law and your and your granddaughter wear hijab, or I think maybe even niqab. Um, Mm -hmm. But the way that even if they are of that, like even if they are of the religious people, it's still just a terrible country to live in in general because of the corruption and unemployment and so many issues, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter who you are, even if you're living in Tehran, you know, there it's, it's a difficult right. place to live in. Right. Um, yeah. So, so right. I, I can totally see that, but my goodness there, we could just keep on talking for hours and hours. <laughs> There's so much more <laughs> to unpack, but I have to say that I'm really, really grateful that you're still in contact with your son Mm-hmm. and that he is open to hearing you and mm-hmm. that you are there as a resource for your granddaughter so that she knows that there is a safe space for her mm-hmm. if things start to get dicey mm-hmm. um if she starts getting pushed into a marriage if she starts getting told you can't do this degree, if she get whatever it is, mm-hmm. if there is some power and control, you know, some negative forces in her life, pushing her in a direction that she doesn't want to go, that she knows that she has her grandma that she can run to. So I'm, I'm really grateful about that. I talk to them. Um, I mean, I talk to them. Every, I don't talk to all of them every day, but I talk to, I talk to my son almost every day. I talk to my daughter-in-law almost every day. Um, I talk to Fatma probably three or four times a week. And the little guy is like several times a day because <laughs> I play games Aww. with them. 
of mine. So they're, you know, hey, grandma, can you come home and play? Or, But I talk to them about their schooling. I talk to them about their futures. I talk to them about what, what do you want? I want you to figure something out that you want for yourself. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's as simple as a hamster. And sometimes it's, it's more, you know, nuanced. And, you know, well, I kind of think that I want to, you know, learn to, I want to be a vet. You know, I want yeah. to be a veterinarian and take care of animals. So that's, it, that's so, so much more meaningful than you could ever imagine. I mean, just imagine what it would have been like for you at that point when you were in that cult with your mom, right? If you had right? a family member yeah. that was willing to constantly be in connection with you, you wouldn't have stayed as long as you stayed or things wouldn't have gotten as bad as they got. If you were talking to somebody sane every day and you're mentioning to them, hey, we're doing this skin to skin thing with a bunch of random men, right? That family member would have been like with the cops coming and getting you out of there. Yes, exactly. Having that open communication is so vital. Yeah, And it's something that I thought of, you know, because people used to say to me, well, your dad wasn't real. Like he didn't, my dad was not religious in any way, shape or form. And I knew he was there on the other side of the country. But I never thought of him as a safe space ever, never crossed my mind right. because he didn't have this line of communication open. I wouldn't even get a phone call on my birthday. Like there was, I didn't speak. I spoke to him probably over my life once a decade. So oh. it was, wow. it, if he had been there for me, things would not have gotten as bad as they did. Because when I started to feel that my mom was pressuring me into a marriage, either with my cousin initially or with the terrorist after that, I would have known I can talk to my dad about it. You know, he can do something about it. He can talk to her and stop her, or he can send me a ticket and bring me over, whatever. I, I, he was never there as like, I never saw him as an opportunity for, you know, a safe space. So for you to just be there for your grandkids, even if you're just playing games, Mm -hmm. You know, you don't even have to be talking about anything, but they know grandma's there and they know grandma cares and they know grandma's paying attention. And that's, that is the world you are giving them the world. They feel that you're right. Yeah. That feeling that investment in their lives and knowing that, you know, I'm there. And I tell them too, all the time, like my, the, the older guy, he's, he's, he'll be 15. He's going through this weird, you know, he's growing, his voice is changing, he's he's maturing, and he's just becoming this, this little dude, you know, and he's got all these weird things going on. And I said, you know, sometimes in life, we want to do stupid things, we want to have fun, we want to run, we want to, we want to leave school and go smoke cigarettes behind the mall, you know, or or go shopping and, you know, ride bikes up and down the escalators, thing, both of which he's done recently. And I said, Wow sounds fun and it's exciting I said and then you've got your dad you know being like you can't do this you got to do this you got to do this I said I need you to understand that he's not doing it because he hates you he's doing it because he's terrified that you did something scary and he doesn't want to lose you you know I'm watching and he goes yeah yeah you're right and I said so you kind of got to understand why parents are being the big assholes that we're being sometimes (laughs) and why we're doing it and what, what we're doing it for. And I said, and you can always, always, always call me. I will never judge you. I will never yell at you. I don't have to, I'm the grandma, right? And yeah. you can always trust in me and tell me things that are going on always. That's so it. every kid, I wish every kid had that. That's beautiful. 
And I just feel yeah. like, I feel like that's so important to have that safety. So important. Yeah. We, had, we didn't have that. Neither of us no. had that. So we understand how important that is. And I would tell yeah. my kids that too, all the time. Like my daughter still, I'm like, I don't care what's going on. You can always, always talk to me, mm-hmm. tell me anything, come to me and, mm-hmm. you know, safe, safe place right here. You know? Oh, that's oh. lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, We've been talking for, for, you know, I've taken oh you gosh. over time and I want to open it up to the group, but you mentioned your daughter just now. I'm going to open it up to the group and I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. Okay. Um, is Muhammad her dad? Yeah. So we had a little fling after. Yeah, yeah that's understandable. That's, that's yeah. typical. Um, yeah. Is it typical? So, oh, it's very typical. I think that the average woman when she's leaving an abusive relationship, I think it's like six times that you go back or something like that. I can't remember the exact number before you finally break. Only free. One, but- okay. Well, that's great. Well, I didn't go it's- back. Yeah. I didn't go back. He yeah. he was living with his wife. He came up to visit and you know, I, yeah. it just, it happened. Yeah. Um, so has he, uh, how is she on the religious spectrum? So I know that your son went all in. Did she, she become is, you know, and, and, um, I was more militant keeping her from going out. She's never been over there. She's never okay. been to the police. I, okay. I would let her go when she was younger. Now she has no, she has no desire to go. Yeah. She speaks with yeah. her uncles. Her uncles were really involved in her life when she was younger. Um, Muhammad's brothers. Um, she's seen her grandma a few times, but Muhammad is not the kind of dad, like his children there never see him. He's not invested. He's off taking care of everybody else in the world, giving away the family money, giving the cars to people, giving them houses and nothing for the family. It's very, it's very strange. Yeah. So she just doesn't have any desire. I know it's painful for her, but she's in a good place with being who she is now. No religion. That's normal. Fathers really. She's, she's absolutely correct. It is. Yeah. It's all about the, exterior view what do people yes. think your yeah. face yeah yes yeah. are you giving right yeah yeah so my the actual like health of, sorry my son isn't like that though well that's good like, that's, I don't good. that's a very typical like thing that yeah it's, it's a good thing yeah, he didn't wow. get that that's interesting to hear from other women though yeah Okay, so I have talked your ear off. So I'm going to get Lois and Sahara and possibly Saad to to get a word in edgewise. Uh, Saad, please go ahead, unmute yourself. Oh, I just wanted to say that I was very, um, thank you for sharing your your story, Deb. It was very inspiring. But I also want to thank Yasmin because because of her, I I. I started following her account on Twitter about two years ago. And then I met Zahra. Um, I started following her after I saw her on your on the Forgotten Feminist. And I just celebrated my first year um, being an ex-Muslim. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 I did. Um, so it's, it's been a lot, but I'm, I've been living away from home for three years now. I mean, I still talk to my family and I guess Ramadan's coming around the bend. So I have to pretend to fast sort of too. I mean, in a different state from my family. So I still have to pretend to fast. Um, that's normal. But um, my father doesn't even know that I took my scarf off. My mom knows. My brothers know. 
but I just honestly don't know um, where I'm at, if, how am I going to even go back home because I honestly cannot see myself going back to where my family is from because they're from a warmer state and being covered again. I don't even know how I did that mm. for 14 years. Yeah. So that's going to be a big deal. But right now I'm currently working at a coffee shop and just um, I'm working with this one this girl. She's very nice. Um, she, she's a, a white girl and she's with a Muslim guy. And I try not to keep my, I try to keep my opinions to myself, but like, bless her heart, as we say down south, mm -hmm. um, she, she, she's very ignorant when it comes to like, I mean, she was mixing up South, I have to correct her that South Asian food and Middle Eastern food are not the same. Um, <laughs> like, 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 I didn't want to say it to her, like, cause we, we were preparing drinks, I didn't want to mess up a drink because, you know, because of her, but I was, and just like. And then apparently she cut her family off because apparently they have a problem with him. But like, it doesn't sound like our family is necessarily racist. It's just that they have logical questions and she doesn't want to answer them uh, for whatever reason. But he's half white. His father is Bangladeshi, but from Bangladesh and his mother's white. And um, mm. from what I can tell, he's not that religious. But still, I don't know because guys can always change, you know, when, when they want to get married. Yeah, yes. I heard Deb's story. Yeah, so I try not to say anything because I don't want to come off as this ex-Muslim bitch who's like <laughs> just bitter because she has a bad relationship with the religion, and, and I don't know. She's that type of girl that will like if I say something too much, she may easily get me in trouble with HR and and still be smiling to my face, but she's trying to get me fired because I yeah. simply brought up a very crucial point about possibly is i already know she's very progressive very leftist um she took me aside a couple of times saying that i wasn't using correct pronouns for some of our co-workers so she's that type of girl so i don't even know i, don't, I already know she's she's not cut out for the islamic life i'm gonna let deb respond because obviously she's the perfect person to to talk to you about this but i just want to really just say really quickly um, that I think just on a, in a general sense, forget Muslim or ex-Muslim or whatever, when a man is responsible for cutting you off or requests or whatever that cuts you off from your family, friends, community, that is a huge red flag. Deb talked about it in her experience as well. So I don't know if that's something that you care enough to bring up to your friend to mention to her that that, like regardless of religion, that is something to be concerned about when you sever the ties um, between you and your family for a man. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to get that out. There. Okay. Deb, sorry. You go ahead because this is your forte. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I feel like she's explaining me and Muhammad right there. You know, I had a friend in high school who said to me, Deb, what are you doing? You what? what about your future? I mean, it's fun right now, but you're getting involved with this guy. What's going to happen? Where are you going to live? Where are your kids going to live? You know, it's like a, she's like, it's like the, the fish and the bird getting together. And I'm like, oh. shut up. Don't listen. So there's a part of you, like when you're in the middle of this and it feels good and it's fun and you don't see the red flags that you're like, I'm in control, but there is a future to consider and especially when you're so young, you don't see that. But I mean, what, you know, what if she gets pregnant and has a child with this man? You know, it, it feels fun now. And it's, you know, it, it's, I mean, I can speak from that. 
right? I know, I know that. And I wish that somebody had been able to, to say, to sit me down and say, let's look at the big picture here. Let's talk about some things rather than somebody just coming by and kind of making disparaging comments. What are you going to do in the future? That's a fish in the bird, you know? So I don't know. I think having conversations with people, even putting that little, that little bit of, of doubt or, or a bug in their ear, I think it'll, st- I think that sticks with people. You know, I think there's, but then again, you know, there's some people who just won't listen and I know it's hard to watch. It's like a train wreck, you know? And also these days, if you try to, and it sounds like Swad was describing that this, her coworker is one of these people that even if you try to have that conversation, she's going to immediately be like, you're racist. Right. Right. Yeah. And Islamophobia. Don't forget that. Or Islamophobe. Correct. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, mean, she could potentially have an issue with HR, but, you know, do it outside of the workplace maybe, or, you know, but, but jerking you up straight and saying, oh, you're not using the right pronouns. That's offensive to me. Like, Mm -hmm. don't, you don't need to, you don't need to police me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't police me. So I don't know. That's tough. Especially if you care for somebody, you know, and I know my friend from high school cared about me and she was just concerned, but I think had she been a little more aggressive with with more information, I, I may have listened to her and avoided some of that. But, you know, that's what I got to say. <laughs> yeah. So I guess yeah, so it depends on how committed you are to, to this friend, how willing you are to, to put in all that effort. Yeah, I think she's also sees that his family, I guess, apparently are nice to her and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean... Like I said, I'm I I I never really said anything directly, but like I might before I leave, and and, and but I I don't know, but I, I'll have to think about it. But um, I was like telling myself like, well, he's not religious, but then I remembered, oh yeah, well that that can change. It's oh, what, yes. um, it's Sahara. So I'm glad it's not you, me working there because that would be different. <laughs> yeah I would be probably fired or something yeah I would definitely talk to her she's gonna talk to me a pronoun pull me aside Mm -hmm. that is first to like you know just I I mean unbelievable and then uh, just I mean I I get it she's very woke and uh, she's like this uh, you know Islam probably she thinks Islam is a religion of peace and you know this and then probably this guy is just dab you know first I want to sorry I don't mean to steal from Swat, you know, talking, but Swat, you told us this on space, you know, Twitter space. And uh, when I heard, like, you know, she pulled you aside about pronouns, I was like, shit, I don't think you can get her, like, even to understand, you know, the consequences of leaving this ideology or why can she even ask questions about this guy? Like, you know, is he going to try to convert her, which is going to happen? I mean, look, Deb's story. The so mm-hmm. similar what Dab, I mean, Mohammed was like very kind and he mm-hmm. was safe right from the beginning. And, and look what he turned into it, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is how they start, especially for non-Muslim women, girls, mm-hmm. they think like, and I don't know if they're all Muslim guy, but a lot of them I met, they think a non-Muslim woman is a whore. Like you guys are running around and having sex every day. It's disgusting, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, it's just. I mean, if I was working there, it would be a different story because I can't put up with this crap. I would just say, like, you need to wake up and realize what you're doing. 
um, a guy who cut your family off. I mean, there's something like Yasmin said, it's a red flag and you need to realize and, and ask questions. But I wish her all the best because that's not gonna end well, in my opinion. But Deb, thank you so much for sharing your story. That's why we need people like you to talk and, and you know to share your story. So at least yeah. the girls and the women who are blind and they don't know anything about this ideology, at least they can see stories like yours and many other you know, con who ended up with this, you know, this situation like you were, um, then they can be, oh, see uh, these perspective and say like, you know what, maybe I need to slow down and I need to ask question and what mm -hmm. is the consequences of living this religion? And this is, this is all just to get me in all sweet and kind and this whole thing, is it fake or is it really genuine? Does it go down from, you know, like is, long, it, is long it love term. bombing as you call yeah, it? It's a love, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I am glad you survived the crap bullshit that you survived. So <laughs> thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. You know, the other thing too, as you were speaking, I I realized that we as women don't learn how to protect ourselves. We're we're, we're groomed to be caregiving people, to love, to to trust and to not look out for ourselves. I mean, at least in my world, the women that yeah, I know. No, you're right. I think if you do, part, then you're a bitch. Right. But part of this too is teaching women how to care for themselves and how to protect themselves, even if something looks good. Like this girl that Suad is working with, you know, it's probably fun and feels great, but right now she's not, she's not safe. She's not looking after herself. She's not protecting herself or her future. And I feel like that is a big part of education and a big part of all of this culty kind of stuff too that we miss talking about is teaching people how to selfishly protect yourself if you need to boundaries boundaries but you know yes yeah, serious boundaries so yeah so thank yeah. you yeah yeah. Sorry, was Deb, I mean, this, uh, yeah, you're welcome, Deb, and I'm glad, and also one more thing, and then I'm going to give the mic back to uh, Suad, because I took it from her, her speaking, but also the other thing is, uh, you are in your, you know, your grandchildren's life, you know, we didn't have this, like, you at least there for them, I can't even imagine what, you know, your granddaughter, uh, 16 years old, you know, they're trying to arrange her already talking about marriage, you know, that's horrifying, but at least you are there. They, she can come mm -hmm. to you, you're safe, your grandma that she can talk to whatever she's going through. So good for you and I'm sending you good, mm -hmm. you know, energy and positive. I hope, you know, things go well with, with your grandchildren and, and your family. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's okay, Zahra. It was, it's a conversation. I didn't take it that you were taking the mic. <laughs> it's 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 fine. But I I was just um I just wanted to, to to ask Deb's opinion about that because I it was something that's been on my mind. Like you know how you have something on irky on the back of your mind. But um yeah, I was I met immediately my heart dropped when you said your granddaughter was sixteen. Like my I was just because I did maybe we one day I'll think. Yeah. What did you say? I just said, as soon as she said her daughter's 16, I think we all were thinking, I'm like, oh, yeah. yes, we know what's coming. <laughs> yeah. we're, 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 we're still trying, we're, we all have a little bit too, uh, too much experience with the experience or like uh, front row seats to this kind of yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I, I did, I did grow up with a girl. Um, I guess she was a little bit, she was around a little bit younger than me. I remember when I was living in the Middle East, I'm not going to say which country, um, and my family, the organization they are part of, that's what, I was in the school there. And this girl, she was 14. She was she 14. She was younger than me a little bit. She was 13, 12. She was already engaged. Oh my God. And then I didn't know how old the guy was. And then uh, when I was even younger, I was when I first went over there, I was around 10. There was this girl, her name was Sirin. She was like so beautiful. She was half Arab, half French. Um, she was also married off very young, like 15, 16. The Sheikh, I mean, he had he was like at least in his 40s. Oh. so yeah so i i don't know i never really got the full story on that like did she did she um like consent but then i'm thinking like how can she truly consent, consent when ever, all the adults mm-hmm. i mean this guy was like a respected adult like respected sheikh in the organization you know in this small little world that we're all part of and i don't really see i mean how her parents would be able to say no so it's just yeah but anyway, I'm gonna let someone else talk. <laughs> Go ahead, Lois. <clears throat> well, Deb, I just want to say that I am in the total awe, total absolute awe of you. I, I just thank you. <laughs> you have come so far, and <clears throat> I wanted to say I well, I'm an ex fundamentalist Christian, and I work with ex Christians to help them, you know, make that transition. And every single one of them that hasn't had a background anywhere like you, every single one says, how could I possibly have believed that? Mm. And I just, everyone, and we were all there. And so you should never think I should have seen the red flags because people in situations far less traumatic than yours didn't see the red flags mm-hmm. and okay i will i <laughs> i was you know a fundamentalist christian with zero self-esteem and i believed it was god's will and i ended up i married a sociopathic alcoholic ex-convict oh, <laughs> now what could be more stupid than that i mean i ask you was that like part of the, was he in the church that you were going no, to? No, it was, I, I was just, well, okay, it was it was my own self, low self-esteem that brought me to that point. But I thought it was God's will for me to salvage this poor lost soul. Oh my gosh, yeah. And yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> but I, you know, and all the people, many of the people that I know and work with now, didn't, didn't have anywhere near like you did we all at least saw some normalcy in the world but we were still taken in Mm -hmm. so you should never ever think i should have seen the red flags because none of us did and i just i gotta say my admiration is beyond my ability to express it Mm. uh for for where how where how you've come I, i just can't imagine can't imagine what it must have been like and thank you thank you thank you for telling your story so important so amazing well thank thank you for being here and listening thank you so you're amazing
I completely feel the same way, Lois. Thank you for sharing that. I feel the exact same way. I think back to that young Deb and my heart is broken for her. You know, it, it's just, it's just, you've had enough trauma for like a dozen lifetimes before you even hit your twenties, you know? Yes. Um, so yeah, what the fact that you're here today, the, the amazing woman that you are sharing your awe-inspiring story is, is a miracle. It's truly a miracle. And, And we're very grateful that, that you would share your story with us and inspire us with what you've overcome. Yeah, well, thank yeah. you. That's that's one of the reasons that I talk when like, I have my Instagram page and I'm I'm pretty vocal now and I'm pretty mouthy. Um, I've come a long way. <laughs> I'm, I'm at a point now where I don't give a crap what anybody says or thinks or wants from me. This yes. is who I am and I say what I want. Like I have people who are coming out of the woodwork now from the cult and they're like, you need to shut up. You need to stop telling people that. That's not the truth. And I'm like, you know, go get your own page. Tell your own story. <laughs> so. Exactly. But also, oh, I love getting to that stage, especially when you've been <laughs> silenced your whole life and you have to say yeah. what needs to be said and yes. use the approved narrative dialogue, whatever. And then now you could just be like, you know what? Fuck all of you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, I forgot. It's so can, liberating. I forgot you're okay with people using the F word because I'm trying to like control oh, myself. Yes. But we were, I was so silenced. And not only was I like silenced in the cult, but when I left, they tried to silence me. Like Lou literally went to the school and he went to the police and he went to all these people. And he's like, Deborah's a liar. She's a runaway. She's a thief. Don't believe a word she says, because he knew I was going to start telling people what he did to me. So, but yeah. So now I, now you can't shut me up. That's my girl. I'm sure you relate to that too, Lois. <laughs> Do I ever? Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I have, I made up a little meme for myself that says, when I lost my faith, I found myself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Perfectly awesome. stated. Yeah. That is beautiful, Lois. I mm. love it. Thank you. Yeah. You can use it. <laughs> yeah. And, and we all found our souls. I think we all did. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. That can be, I think that that can be applied to all of us here in this group right now mm-hmm. that we all yeah. feel that experience very, mm-hmm. very deeply. Well, thank you again, Deb, for sharing your story and for spending so much time with us. You know, it's kind of weird because the other woman that converted to, or I know you didn't convert, but that married a Muslim man and he also had multiple wives um her name is also deb oh <laughs> really that's why when i saw her to. story yes man i had to reread deb you deb you know not our yeah. other friend deb so i was like oh my gosh it's another one i'm like thinking another oh, one shit. <laughs> oh shit another deb yeah and and a lot of the similarities that like sarad was mentioning of just thinking that you know he's mm-hmm. cute tall dark and handsome or whatever oh it's exotic oh it's interesting oh it's different and then not really noticing the dark side until things until you're in too deep and similar to you um the other deb was pregnant before she started to to see things um and you know it's almost like the hooks are in at that point 
Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. but her, like you, both of you were able to overcome and come out the other side and come out swinging and come out sharing your stories. And I hope that women like the woman that Saad works with get to hear your stories and it opens their minds a little bit, plant some seeds. Because honestly, if I were to think about it, the email that I get more than anything, like the theme of the email is either women or their family members writing to me and talking to me about how they met this guy and he was so cool and he was so exotic and he was so nice and handsome and protective. The word protective is always there. Mm-hmm. Um, which of course, you know, we know is code for controlling, but they just don't recognize it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then things turn ugly, just mm-hmm. exactly what happened to you. Is such a common story. And I think once you recognize how common it is, it will also allow you to not even forgive yourself, but to understand yourself more and recognize that this is a, this is a, this is a common, commonly used method of, of pulling young girls in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so you were a victim of that and not, you know, I, I just want, I just, just like Lois, I just want to echo that again. Cause that really hurt my heart when you said that you, you know, I take responsibility and I should have done this and I should have yeah. done that. Don't, don't do yeah. shoulda, woulda, coulda. It is so toxic and you don't deserve that. Like that yeah. Deb, think of her back then. She doesn't deserve that. That's the last thing in the world she needs right now yeah, to, or ever is to be admonished. You know, like she, she has overcome such amazing odds and that's what you need to focus on and, and, um, and, uh, be proud of. Um, when I had some therapy, we, in that situation, we were taught to nurture that child that never got nurturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you look back at your child and you love her and you nurture her mm-hmm. and tell her she's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. never got that. That's so right. you finally get to be your own nurturer. You probably yeah. when you were growing up, like the rest of us, you were always thinking that somebody might come and save me one day. I might get out of this. Somebody will protect me. And you yeah. never had that. Mm-hmm. And you never imagined that you would be the one to save yourself exactly. and to protect yourself. Yeah. And give yourself the love and nurturing that you didn't get that you should have gotten that you were entitled to and that you deserved but you're getting it now yeah yeah definitely yeah (laughs) (laughs) well before I let you go Deb I just want to make sure that um, you've said everything you need to say and that there are no last words maybe some final advice for for any listeners or anyone who's going through a similar situation um, to what you went through um you know that's similar situations. So there was a time when Muhammad had Hussein back in UAE and he wouldn't send him back to me. And it was fierce. It was horrible. I mean, I thought I was going to die, but, um, and I had to go through the state department and do all kinds of things. And I know that there's still, there's still women in these situations and even men. Like I know, I know some men who are here and their, their kids were taken back to the middle East and they never saw them again. Um, so, you know, I think my advice would be 
for anybody who's getting involved with somebody so young and so fresh and raw, you know, with emotion is to allow yourself moments to step back, step back from it. That, I mean, especially relationships, but any situation, like maybe it's a job, maybe it's a church, maybe it's a, you know, a religious group that you you're overwhelmed with or you emotionally, everything's emotional, step back, take a step back from it and allow yourself some time to just reflect or to just not think about it. Not, you know, so when you come back, you have a fresher perspective and sometimes just that fresh perspective might be some advocacy for yourself. Like, is this the best thing for me? Now it doesn't feel right. You know, go with that. Trust your gut, give yourself, allow yourself the same kind of advocacy that you would give to somebody else in a similar situation. And as you're younger, you know, learn that, hone that skill. And, you know, and, and if it's a good situation and, you know, you, you're going into it with eyes wide open, you feel you still need to offer yourself those moments of of clarity, those moments of stepping back and, and taking a, a look at the big picture. Um, I actually learned that from a therapist when I first left the cult mm-hmm. because she's like, you know, I see some of your behavior, your, your behavior is coming across more as survival mode rather than yeah. living and thriving mode. And here's what I'm going to, here's what you need to do. And I'm telling you, had I used that in the situation, I might, you know, I might've saved myself a lot of heartache, but I've used that, that tool. That's the best tool in my little belt of, of life skills is to back up a minute, take a breather, regroup, think about things, give myself some time to be safe and, um, and then see where you go from there. It's part of that deconstruction, um, escaping from those those high control religious groups too that that give people the chance to move forward rather than to cult hop or you know become and get into a situation that is equally as controlling or oppressive i think yeah that's it excellent excellent advice really really helpful advice and i can say from experience um that anybody who takes you up on that will definitely appreciate it and understand like what a significant difference it's going to make in their life because uh yeah invaluable we don't do that enough Mm -hmm. and um yeah thank you for sharing that with us deb and thank you all for joining us. And yes, a final congratulations to Saad for her yes. uh, <laughs> for her one year yes. anniversary. And congratulations to all of us for breaking free and being the the wonderful women that we are today. And I am so grateful and so pleased to get to know you all. And I'm I'm honestly. I, I wish I could hug you all like you, you are my women. I hear you talking and I'm like, you are my girl. Like I just, it's so many of us have gone through these experiences entirely in our own heads, you know, just afraid, isolated, alone. And to have us now finishing each other's sentences and sharing our experiences and finding the similarities, like this is This is so healing and it will never not be healing. Every single one of these forgotten feminist conversations, I walk out of it as light as air, like just feeling like I'm on cloud nine. Mm. And I really especially feel that way today, Deb, because I am so incredibly proud of you. And I feel like Mm. you are 
an example of human res resilience. You know, if yes. you can overcome what you have overcome, there's hope for anybody to overcome anything really. <laughs> so, so thank you again. And thank you to everyone. And I look forward to seeing you next week. And my next forgotten feminist is going to be next week. Yeah. Oh. Not skipping a week this time. All right. Take care, Bye. everyone. Bye. Bye.